On the dais, Lord Wyman. On the dais, Lord Wyman Manderley sat between. Milady, Theon broke in. We are here. Oh. We view the. Fo- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Here we are. The best theory on Lady Barbary's heel turn elegantly ties her in. Hmm? No. The best. Hmm. Sorry, I've got like skateboarders out my window. I'm so sorry. Give me like two seconds. They're so loud. Okay, I think they're gone. You guys can't hear it, can you? I couldn't. Okay, good. <laughs> this is really distracting. Hoodlums, I tell you. Okay. Um. Leave the castle. Croaked one armed. Yeah, try that again. Hey, everybody. Matt here. Just a real quick uh, iTunes update. I want to thank Margot, I think is how you say this name, in the U.S. iTunes store for your review and the stars. And thank you very much for your comments. And spoiler alert, this podcast will go deep into the A Song of Ice and Fire books and the world of Ice and Fire in regards to the Grand Northern Conspiracy Theory. If you're not familiar with that theory and you don't want to know anything about it, this might not be the podcast for you, but we will return in 2017 with more show-only podcasts. Thanks, and we hope you have a great holiday season. Dedicated to George R.R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell, episode 302. It's the final podcast of the year. We'll be taking a holiday break after we do this particular podcast. And it is a Grand Northern Conspiracy the final, final wrap-up. We will be concluding our coverage of that particular theory in this podcast. And, of course, we're joined by John, who is at J underscore McGonagall on Twitter. We are also joined by Kelly, who is at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. We're joined by Susan, who is at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter. And we are joined course by our good friend mike hall who is at fifth column film on twitter you'll also know him from the small council game of thrones podcast i of course am matt murdick from podcastwinterfell.com that's where you can find all of our contact information you can find back episodes you can find social media uh, all kinds of links uh, podcast app links and i would love it if you'd take the time to leave me a written review That's enough about uh, the podcast. Let's get right into picking up where we left off in the very last episode. And here's John to kick us off. As we move on, there is one character that we are fairly certain has been working with Manderly since events in A Clash of Kings, long before the Red Wedding, and is now at Winterfell with him. From what we see through Theon's perspective, the men never exchange words, nor do they interact in any way. So it would be easy to overlook this character as a GNC ally. But much like his nickname, Old Hother Horsebane Umber is not as simple as he seems. Recall from our last episode, when Davos was in White Harbor, he counted 23 war galleys in the Inner Harbor and Wyman boasts of as many more additionally hidden up the White Knife. He tells Davos that he's been building warships for more than a year, which would place the time work began just after the Winterfell Harvest Feast, where the Umber brothers were ordered by Sir Roderick to work with Manderley to build a fleet for Rob. If the work has been ongoing since that time, that gives Manderley the opportunity to pass information to the Umbers. Not only the knowledge he's been able to decipher from Wax, but also the information he might have gotten from Robert Glover, who might have gotten it from his brother Galvar Glover, in the neck, specifically of Rob's heir. 
After our analysis of Manderley, it seems safe to assume, just because a house is present at Winterfell and seems to be offering fealty to the new Warden of the North, that does not mean that they are truly supporting House Bolton. Indeed, House Umber is putting up even less of a pretext than House Manderley, as half their house is openly supporting Stannis. It is even mentioned several times on page that the Hother half of the Umbers are only supporting Bolton because the phrase have the great John, their lord, captive at the twins. This is the first conclusion John comes to when he hears of the alliance. Lady Barbary says as much once to Theon in the crypts and again to Aenys Frey at Theon's interrogation. We also see no indication that Hothar has informed Roose of the Manderly warships. Let's take a look at Old Whore's Bane to see if we can find evidence of any suspicious behavior that might be furthering the GNC cause. Hothar is the youngest son of Horfrost Umber, who thought the boy had the makings of a maester and sent Hothar to Old Town some 50 plus years ago. It was there he got his nickname when he disemboweled a whore who tried to rob him. The tale is only told in whispers because the whore was a man. Indeed, while old Nan told Bran of the story of how Moores got his nickname Crow Food, she wouldn't tell the boy where Whore's Bane came from. This tale is fun and colorful but might serve more to distract from the fact that Hothar studied at the Citadel. It isn't known if he ever forged a collar or was even awarded a link, but we also don't know when or why he left. It could be assumed he was dismissed after the incident with the whore. A murder that earns you a nickname might be frowned upon by the Archmaesters. If that is the case, he was at least old enough to purchase a whore and disembowel a man. With the Westerosi factor and the Northmen scale applied, Let's call that a nice and uncomfortable 15 years old. By that age, he might have learned the basic maester skills like ravenry and writing or even advanced subjects like Warcraft. This might indicate why he took to the task to appease the Boltons and lead to further implications yet to be seen. And after the Winterfell Harvest Feast, we don't see Hothar until the first Theon chapter of A Dance with Dragons. It's a real mind-bender of a chapter where we don't even realize whose perspective we're reading. Little and Big Walder bring Reek 3.0 up from the dungeon of the Dreadfort to the Great Hall, where Ramsay is hosting guests at dinner in celebration of his marriage arrangement. At the high table with the Bastard of Bolton are two lords. Theon doesn't name the men, but their descriptions match those of Hothar Umber and Arnolf Karstark. Curious, as the Karstarks have declared for Stannis by this point, but we'll look at the Karstarks more when we examine Stannis. Ramsay makes a game of showing off Theon, not telling the lords who he is, Hothar is the first to see the truth and twice advises Ramsay to kill him, but Ramsay has plans for Theon. In the Winds of Winter sample chapter for Theon, it is revealed that the Umbermen following Hothar are gray beards. Old men, every one. There aren't any indications of this in A Dance with Dragons, and we don't want to spend too much time speculating on non-canonical sources, but we would be remiss not to mention it. Like Manderley, perhaps these old men are on an honorable final mission of vengeance and do not intend to survive. The rest of Hothar's scenes on page are fairly uneventful. He is present at Moat Caelan when Theon takes the towers. He is at Ramsay's wedding to Fagaria and attends the feast afterwards. When Maester Medric brings word to Roose of Stannis' army leaving Deepwood Mott, Moore's numbers forces leaving Last Hearth, and Karstark's coming from the east, the lords adjourn to discuss battle plans. Theon describes Hothar's face as grim and scowling as he left, which might indicate displeasure at the prospect of fighting his brother. Theon's next chapter opens with the beginning of the snowstorm. Bran Brass has done an extensive examination of the four Theon chapters in Winterfell, and he suggests that about two weeks have passed from the wedding to the snowstorm. It is on this morning that we have a scene of interest that could be the next link in our chain of Westerosi telephone. And this is Dance with Dragons, chapter 41, Theon 5, 
called the Turncloak. On the dais, Lord Wyman Manderley sat between a pair of his white harbor knights, spooning porridge into his fat face. He did not seem to be enjoying it as near as much as he had the pork pies at the wedding. Elsewhere, one-armed Harwood Stout talked quietly with the cadaverous Horsbane Umber. All right, so Hothar spoke quietly to Harwood Stout. Sure, Stout has sworn to House Dustin and Harwood could theoretically act as an envoy for Lord Barbray. Sure, Harwood seemed to really dislike Ramsay as he was hosting him at Goldgrass, but on the face of it, this scene indicates very little. However, it wouldn't be very satisfying conspiracy if all pieces were hidden in this breadcrumb is just evidence needed to link the Manderley and Umber conspirators to the West Side Northerners, the Dustins and the Ricewells, the two houses Roos believes are his staunchest Northern supporters. It is almost decadent in its subtlety, the implications which will become evident when we analyze Barbray herself. For now, we must be satisfied with the opportunity for information to pass on page from Hothar to Harwood. The other interpretations of the scene is that Manderley's hour-long squats have borne fruit, and now the lords have so much to discuss that they must needs do so at any opportunity, even in the Great Hall, as long as it is done so quietly. The result of both interpretations... <laughs> We're getting there, guys. The result of both interpretations is the same. Knowledge is spread and plots are hatching. There are hints later in the same chapter that indicate Lord Stout and Lady Dustin have been brought into the fold. A battle was being fought in the yard, Riswell's pelting Barrowton boys with snowballs. Above, he could see squires building snowmen along the battlements. They were arming them with spears and shields, putting iron half-helms on their heads and arraying them along the inner wall, a rank of snowy sentinels. Lord Winters joined us with his levies, one of the sentries outside the Great Hall japed, until he saw Theon's face and realized who he was talking to. Then he turned his head and spat. Theon wanders the battlements and grounds, finds himself at the heart tree, and tries to pray, but withdraws when he hears faint sobbing and cannot endure the sound. More snowmen had risen in the yard by the time Theon Greyjoy made his way back. To command the snowy sentinels on the wall, the squires had erected a dozen snowy lords. One was plainly meant to be Lord Manderley. It was the fattest snowman that Theon had ever seen. The one-armed lord could only be Harwood Stout. The snow lady, Barbary Dustin, and the one closest to the door with the beard made of icicles had to be Horsbane Umber. After the quiet talking between the men on the dais and the construction of the dozen snowy lords, Lady Barbray approaches Theon with a bizarre command, and the rest of the chapter is dedicated to their exploration of the crypts. We'll explore that scene for ourselves in the next section, but it could be argued the subtle exchange between Hother and Harwood was her impetuous for seeking Theon's help. For our discussion on Horsebane, let's take the points in reverse order. You find the Snowy Lords convincing. It does say it doesn't have been built, but Theon only identifies the four players discussed so far. Is George trying to connect these lords in the minds of readers? Keep in mind some symbolism as Wyla Manderley had declared Manderley loyal in the terms of Stark men. And if these characters are working to actualize Rob's will, and if Rob's will was indeed as to name John his heir, they would be Snow Men. Hmm. Indeed, interesting. So, Lord Manderley, what do we have to say? 
this is this is very clever, but it's too much. It, we're it's we've too too much talking about like a couple of sentences here. You know, like the other things were like building to something. This one I feel like is just kind of like tinsel on the tree. You know, tinsel on the tree. Who doesn't like a good bit of tinsel? I think I think fair, is just fair. He's just he's sensitive. He didn't like being compared with a the biggest snowman Theon had ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Cleared a whole walkway. He used so much snow to make that snowman. <laughs> well, Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I can I can agree. I think that this is 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 reaching a little bit. I like it though. I like that there there's symbolism there. Um and it does kind of play into some of the themes with snow and stuff. So I, I enjoy it. It's not um, sufficient, I would say. If this was all there was, if it didn't go into the crypts later, and and then as Lady Barbary's analysis comes later, um, it's not super convincing. But it's um, I think it's it's a cool sign. It's also kind of it, it suggested that it could also since it's on the battlements that it could be seen by forces outside of Winterfell. Um, it could have been like some sign that they were agreed to wait for to i don't know <laughs> it could be that would yeah. be a good and it, maybe those men in waiting on their horses are waiting for the snowmen to take to the battlements <laughs> that's also a stretch though because i think somewhere in the chapters it said like you can't see five feet past your hand or from from your nose out in the storm so <laughs> i i admit i'm stretching but it could i don't know it could be a sign to the lords inside the um inside the castle, some sort of indication that everyone's on board. It seems a little silly though. Cause like it, you'd have to have like Wyman tell these boys to build these snowmen. So I don't, <laughs> I'm stretching guys. I'll admit it. <laughs> I don't know. I like the symbolism though. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll just stop there. Stop me there. Cut it off there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kelly is done for the evening. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> off mute for never. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, now that Kelly's done with her wonderful point, where do you stand on this? Uh, I, I think I agree with Mike that it's great symbolism and it makes it fun, but I don't know if it really contributes anything concrete to anything in, in terms of communication between them. I think that the passages of them talking is enough if you're going to go that route. Yeah, no, I, you're probably you. You two are probably right. Um, I'm just wishful thinking here, but. Still, still, I've never have thought of that. That was a good catch there, Kelly, for symbolism. I'm still, I'm still kind of in awe of it. Susan, I'll go to you. I'm sure you have something far more insightful <laughs> than any of us had to say so far. Well, I don't know about that, but I do like it. I like it a lot. And I think it's more for the reader than necessarily for, you know, the characters themselves. You know, more for the reader to take note of. Uh, in the symbolic way. And I think to me, what's relevant of it is the fact that it's the particular people who are being depicted. And I think it might say something to, you know, as you say, these private conversations that are taking place, uh, information that's being passed, maybe individuals are changing their mind or deciding to take a certain position. And uh, as they're being convinced to uh, maybe go on the side of, uh, you know, become part of the snowmen, then maybe that's when their their snowmen get built. Like I said, you definitely had something more to say than we did. (laughs) (laughs) 
What, what do you, you said you were, you know, we were dashing your hopes there, John. What, what did you mean? Well, how did you feel about it? Oh, no, I just thought it was really cool to even think that somebody on the inside would already be calling for Jon Snow at this point, considering mm. like he's he's probably dead it, it, while this is going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, George knows that, but but nobody in Winterfell knows that. And we know that. This is true. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I can't remember the chapter orders. It's been so long since I read the books, but I'm pretty sure doesn't this happen before that chapter? But I just don't know where his timeline kind of stacks oh, on top that's of each true. other. Yeah, this is this is all. In, but this is only chapter 41, so it's definitely before John dies. Um, so oh, maybe yeah. it's only something that you catch on a reread and then realize. Yeah. But how will this mean anything if John's dead? <laughs> that's my that's my <laughs> my He's answer. Dead? To <laughs> no. I, I, I'm, Pretty sure the show took that cue from from George himself. <laughs> I think we have no worries there. I know. Yeah, Spoilers. I like Susan. I like what you said. It's for the reader, and because I I have to, I'll emphasize that because George does say that it doesn't have been built, but he only, but George has Theon only name the four. So I think that that's right. kind of yeah, a rhetorical device, some narrative tools he's using. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think some symbolism at times is is just meant it's not necessarily meant to be the characters in the story for them to pick up on i think it is meant to uh, to reinforce it for us mm-hmm. i like it let's go let's get to the next question though because this is this could be kind of interesting i think this conversation might bear more fruit so what could the possibility of horsebane spending any time at the senate citadel play in the north grand northern conspiracy Okay, I'll I'll jump in and I'll say that actually this is something that I found really interesting. Um, I, you know that the mention of, of ravenry um, would make things a lot more interesting in terms of of uh, how to look at these characters uh, and the way they're communicating. Um, you know, through somebody who just is pretty much playing on the inside, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, the way to get get any sort of word out. And I mean, most people don't have that skill. And if is there even a maester at Winterfell at this point? <laughs> you read the docs so well, I can tell. There are three maesters at Winterfell. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what? No, I, I did not read the document because I had, I had stuff going on. Kelly. You have a Bruce. All you have to ever say to me is you have a, a He had Bruce. a birthday going on for crying out loud. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> mad. Don't tell them. It's now old. they know I'm old. <laughs> you are wise is how we'll read that. Um, <laughs> there are three maesters in Winterfell and they're, um, they're talked a lot about in Bran Vrass's uh, Winterfell Week Low. And it's um, curious because there's like no other places besides, I think Tywin uses three maesters at one point, but that's really it. Um, and he draws them all from the other houses. So he takes them from these other lords, um, which is odd. And then it's also it's kind of like um, analyzed way too thoroughly there, but it seems that he brings them all to make sure that not one of them can betray him. Because if you have like a force of three against, you know, one of them will tell you that someone else is lying or they all would have to have the same story if you interview them, something like that. So it's kind of to, to kind of hedge his bets to have these three maesters there. Um, And he, it's said that he has them there to take care of Lewin's ravens and they come out of, of Bruce's, like the Lord's door at the feast. So it's kind of said that he's got, he has exclusive access to them. Like they're not there with the other houses. They're there, especially specifically for Bruce. So it could, 
the Old Town Citadel stuff with Hothar could be um, an indication that they do have the ability to send ravens or to uh, write letters somehow um, and get them out, that they don't need to utilize Roos's maesters to do that. And that goes even further into the pink letter stuff, and there's a lot of theories about that. <laughs> but that's not so much in the GNC, so I won't go too far off the rails on that. <laughs> well, I'll admit I really don't have much of anything to add. I, I couldn't think of anything without putting some... I hadn't thought of this before, so I'd have to really do a little research and thought into it. And the only thing that I found interesting was the, you know, what you just mentioned, the fact that um, ravenry may, may play into it. And I hadn't, hadn't thought of that till it was just said. So that's all I have to add. Mike, anything? Mm, nothing worth hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll move on. The game of Westerosi Telephone continues with the addition of Snow Lady on the battlements. We believe Lady Barbara A. Dustin has joined the GNC Lords, but this lady presents the most difficult case to prove. She doesn't appear until Theon's third chapter in Dance, and when she does, she is introduced as the most bitter scorned woman in Westeros. And this is a place that has Cersei Lannister and Lysa Tully. So how does she go from hating the Starks to joining the GNC? As ever, we must need look very close. She has three large scenes with Theon at the wedding feast, in the crypts, and at the interrogation. These conversations are the source for numerous other theories. The Tower of Joy, Southern Ambitions, the Grand Maester Conspiracy, and many more. It can be very distracting reading her scenes, and that is probably intentional by George. With this in mind, let us dive into what we know about this vexing Lady Barbara to see if we can make an educated guess as to her motivations and when and why, or even if she turned her back on Roos. The only northern houses at Winterfell that Bolton seems to trust are the Dustins of Barrowton and the Risewells of the Rills. The Barrowlands is an area of extensive plains just north of the Neck and west of the White Knife. Barrowton lies near the center of the Barrowlands at about the same latitude as White Harbor. The Rills is the area just west of the Barrowlands on the coast of the Blazewater Bay. The outcropping of the stony shore to the north and Flint's Figures to the south separate the bay from the Sunset Sea. From the sea, boats can sail into the bay, which connects to a long inlet called the Salt Spear. This inlet connects to the Fever River, where boats can sail to its headwaters, which lie less than 20 miles from Mode Kalen. This is the route Victorian's fleet sailed when they took the ancient stronghold. As we mentioned earlier, House Dustin and House Risewell were the first houses to join Ramsay in clearing out the Ironmen, and their geography could have been their main impetus. At the wall, Melisandre has a vision of northern banners, Hornwood, Serwin, Tallhart, Risewell, and Dustin, in a town with wooden walls, Barrowton. One of Selyse's queen's men calls them traitors and Lannister lapdogs, but John informs them the Risewells and Dustins are tied to House Bolton by marriage. This is revealed in A Dance with Dragons, uh, Chapter 17, John 4. Indeed, Lord Roderick Weiswell, eldest daughter, Bethany, was Roos's second wife. They had a son, Domric, before Bethany died of fever. This connection could predispose the Risewells to be sympathetic to the Boltons, but as we promised earlier, let's look closer at the death of Domric. When Roos interrupts Ramsay's defeatist feast at Goldgrass, he for some reason details to his bastard exactly how Barbary Dustin is related to him. Our upper-level reader awareness suggests this was George's way of informing the reader of some backstory. But just as Roos is detailing his connection to Barbary, he indicates her support of House Bolton comes in spite of Ramsay. This is from A Dance with Dragons, Chapter 32, Theon's Third Chapter, Reek 3. 
She was fond of my late son and suspects you of having some part in his demise. Lady Barbary is a woman who knows how to nurse a grievance. Be grateful for that. Bariton is staunch for Bolton, largely because she still holds Ned Stark to blame for her husband's death. We'll come back to the part about Ned later, as well as Roos's familial uses of Lady Dustin's first name. For now, the Domerick part. Who was this guy? At the Winterfell Harvest Feast, Lady Donella Hornwood introduces us to three key Dreadfort characters, Ramsay, Domerick, and the original Reek. From A Clash of Kings, Chapter 16, Brand 2. Bolton's bastard is massing men at the Dreadfort, she warned them. I hope he means to take them south to join his father at the Twins. But when I sent to ask his intent, he told me that no Bolton would be questioned by a woman, as if he were trueborn and had a right to that name. Lord Bolton has never acknowledged the boy, so far as I know, Sir Roderick said. I confess, I do not know him. Few do, she replied. He lived with his mother until two years passed, when young Domric died and left Bolton without an heir. That was when he brought his bastard to the Dreadfort. The boy is a sly creature by all accounts, and he has a servant who is almost as cruel as he is. Reek, they call the man. It is said he never bathes. They hunt together, the bastard and this Reek, and not for deer. I've heard tales, things I can scarce believe even of a Bolton. And now that my lord husband and my sweet son have gone to the gods, the bastard looks at my land hungrily. It seems Domer died just three years prior to current events at Bolton Fell. His death benefited Ramsay. How convenient. That could indicate to us that the connection that bound the Dustins and the Risewells to the Boltons was severed at that time. Back at Barrowton in Theon's third dance chapter, we are subjected to a jumble of backstory expounded by Roos to Theon on their heart-to-heart journey from Ramsay's defeatist feast at Goldgrass Keep to meet Lady Dustin at Barrow Hall. It is difficult to discern Roos's motivation during this discussion. He straight up chuckles when he guesses that Ramsay told Theon to spy on him. He seems to believe Theon is Ramsay's creature through and through. We'll tell Ramsay anything, and Roos doesn't seem concerned by this in the least. So we might assume the things Roos says to Theon are supposed to get back to Ramsay, which tinges the credibility of everything he says with a touch of suspicion or hidden meaning. We hear the Ramsay origin story, exploits of the original Reek and their mutual corruption, Roos bemoans the taint of Ramsay's bad blood. Not even leeches can save him. Theon isn't used to being spoken to like a human being and struggles to make conversation. Here is what Roos says about his trueborn son, Domeric. Still in Theon 3. He is your only son. For the moment, I had another once. Domeric. Quiet boy, but most accomplished. He served four years as Lady Dustin's page and three in the Vale as a squire to Lord Redfort. He played the high harp, read histories, and rode like the wind. Horses. The boy was mad for horses, Lady Dustin will tell you. Not even Lord Rickard's daughter could outrace him, and that one was half a horse herself. Redfort said he showed great promise in the lists. A great jouster must be a great horseman first. Yes, my lord, Domerick. I I have heard his name. Ramsay killed him. The sickness of the bowels, Maester Othor says, but I say poison. In the Vale, Domerick had enjoyed the company of Redford's sons. He wanted a brother by his side, so he rode up the weeping water to seek my bastard out. 
I forbade it, but Dominic was a man grown and thought he knew better than his father. Now his bones lie beneath the dread fort with the bones of his brothers, who died still in the cradle, and I am left with Ramsay. Tell me, my lord, if the kinslayer is accursed, what is a father to do when one son slays another? The question frightened him. Once he had heard Skinner say that the bastard had killed his true-born brother, but he had never dared to believe it. He could be wrong. Brothers die sometimes. It did not mean that they were killed. So Theon had heard the tale before, it, it seems, from one of the bastard's boys. As important to note as this heart-to-heart trip down memory lane Roose takes with Theon is just bizarre and can be read entirely with skepticism. So assuming the tale is known, Lady Barbary has had good reason to despise Ramsay for longer than anyone else at Bolton Fell. Domric's affinity for horses could symbolically highlight his connection to his mother's family, the Ricewells. The death of her beloved nephew would have caused Lady Barbary great sorrow, but the suspect murder of him would evoke her fury on his killer. She doesn't hide her feelings for Ramsay either. While Roos and Fat Wallace stay with Lady Barbary at Barrow Hall, Ramsay is not welcome there, even though he has been legitimized by the Crown and should be treated as Roos's true-born heir at this point. While most refrain from referencing his low birth, Lady Barbary refers to him only as Bastard. Which brings us back to the familiarity between Roos and Barbary. He refers to her as Lady Barbary when talking to Ramsay, and she refers to him as Roos when talking to Theon. She calls Ramsay the Bastard in front of Roos all the time. Some theorize this could indicate an intimate relationship between the two, ooh but we saw Ned refer to Lysa by her first name in Catelyn's first chapter, so it seems common to drop some formality when two houses are joined by marriage and family. Of course, it's possible, which makes it worth a quick mention here. It does appear Lady Barbary holds only Ramsay accountable for Domric's death, not Roos. Her loathing of the bastard could be on account of his extracurricular activities as well. It isn't hard to see how she, a lady in charge of a castle and lands, widowed with no heir, could relate to Lady Hornwood. But what about the other grudge Roos mentioned? She blames Ned for her husband's death. That story and many more clues come to light in Theon's fifth dance chapter, the Turncloak. Let's look at what Lady Barbary says to Theon as they explore the crypts of Winterfell on the same day Theon saw Hother, Umber, and Harwood Stout talking quietly on the dais in the snowy lords on the battlements. Lady Barbary approaches him in the Great Hall of Winterfell. Keep in mind, like Roos, she might have ulterior motives. This next reading has also been a bridge for expediency. This quote's from A Dance with Dragons, Chapter 41, The Turncloak. You know this castle. Once. Somewhere beneath us are the crypts where the old Stark kings sit in darkness. My men have not been able to find the way down there. They have been through all the undercrofts and cellars, even the dungeons, but... The, the crypts cannot be accessed from the dungeons, milady. Can you show me the way down? There, there's nothing down there but... Dead Starks? Aye. And all my favorite Starks are dead as it happens. Do you know the way down or not? I do. He did not like the Crips, had never liked the Crips, but he was no stranger to them. Show me. Sergeant, fetch a lantern. My lady will want a warm cloak, cautioned Theon. We will need to go outside. Theon leads Lady Barbary and her retinue to the base of the broken tower where the entrance of the crypts is covered in rubble and snow. It takes her men the better part of an hour to uncover the frozen door and longer still to find an axe and pull it open. Lady Barbary's sergeant leads the party down carrying the lantern. 
The bride weeps, Lady Dustin said, as they made their way down, step by careful step. Our little Lady Arya. Take care now. Take care. Take care. He put one hand on the wall. The shifting torchlight made the steps seem to move beneath his feet. As, as you say, milady. Roos is not pleased. Tell your bastard that. He's not my bastard, he wanted to say, but another voice inside him said, He is, he is. Reek belongs to Ramsay and Ramsay belongs to Reek. You must not forget your name. Dressing her in gray and white serves no good if the girl is left to sob. The phrase may not care, but the Northmen, they fear the Dreadfort, but they love the Starks. Not you, said Theon. Not me, the Lady of Barrowton confessed. But the rest, yes. Old Horsebane is only here because the phrase hold the great John captive. And do you imagine the Hornwood men have forgotten the bastard's last marriage and how his lady wife was left to starve, chewing her own fingers? What do you think passes through their heads when they hear the new bride weeping? Valiant Ned's precious little girl. No, he thought. She is not of Lord Eddard's blood. Her name is Jane. She is only a steward's daughter. He did not doubt that Lady Dustin suspected, but even so. Lady Arya's sobs do us more harm than all of Lord Stannis's swords and spears. If the bastard means to remain Lord of Winterfell, he had best teach his wife to laugh. Milady, Theon broke in. Here we are. They view the vault lined with pillars. Lady Barbary asks nominal questions, Theon answers. She asks about Ned's tomb, and he directs her to the end. They pass the statues of the lords and their direwolves. That king is missing his sword, Lady Dustin observed. It was true. Theon did not recall exactly which king it was, but the long sword he should have held was gone. Streaks of rust remained to show where it had been. The sight disquieted him. He had always heard the iron in the sword kept the spirits of the dead locked within their tombs. If a sword was missing, the ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. They walked on. Barbary Dustin's face seemed to harden with every step. She likes this place no more than I do, Theon heard himself say. My lady, why do you hate the stocks? She studied him. For the same reason you love them. Theon stumbled. L love them? I never... I took this castle from them, my lady. I had Bran and Rickon put to death, mounted their heads on spikes. I rode south with Rob Stark, fought beside him at the Whispering Wood and River Run, returned to the Iron Islands as his envoy to treat with your own father. Barrowton sent men with the young wolf as well. I gave him as few as I dared, but I knew that I must needs give him some or risk the wrath of Winterfell. So I had my own eyes and ears in that host. They kept me well informed. I know who you are. I know what you are. Now answer my question. Why do you love the Starks? I... Theon put a gloved hand against a pillar. I wanted to be one of them. And never could. We have more in common than you know, my lord. But come. Only a little further on, 
Three tombs were closely grouped together. That was where they halted. Lord Rickard. Lady Dustin observed, studying the central figure. The statue loomed above them, long-faced, bearded, solemn. He had the same stone eyes as the rest, but his looked sad. He lacks a sword as well. It was true. Someone has been done here stealing swords. Brandon's is gone as well. Lady Dustin describes her relationship with Brandon Stark. He was fostered at Barrowton when she was a girl in the Rills. They were lovers. On their last night together, Brandon told her he did not want to marry Catelyn. Lady Dustin tells Theon it was Rickard Stark's southern ambitions which dictated the match. Lord Risewell thought to wed Barbary to Ned. But with Brandon's death, Lady Dustin says, Catelyn Tully got that one as well. I was left with young Lord Dustin until Ned Stark took him from me. Robert's Rebellion. Lord Dustin and I had been married half a year when Robert rose and Ned Stark called his banners. I begged my husband not to go. He had Ken he might have sent in his stead. An uncle famed for his prowess with an axe, a great uncle who had fought in the War of the Nine Penny Kings. But he was a man full of pride. Nothing would serve but that he lead the Barrowton levies himself. I gave him a horse the day he set out, a red stallion with a fiery mane, the pride of my lord's father's herds. My lord swore that he would ride him home when the war was done. Ned Stark returned the horse to me on his way back home to Winterfell. He told me that my lord had died an honorable death, that his body had been laid to rest beneath the red mountains of Dorne. He brought his sister's bones back north, though, and there she rests. But I promise you, Lord Eddard's bones will never rest beside hers. I mean to feed them to my dogs. Theon did not understand. His... his bones? Her lips twisted. It was an ugly smile, a smile that reminded him of Ramsay's. Catelyn Tully dispatched Lord Eddard's bones north before the Red Wedding. But your iron uncle seized Moat Caelan and closed the way. I have been watching ever since. Should those bones ever emerge from the swamps, they will get no farther than Barrowton. She threw one last lingering look at the likeness of Eddard Stark. We are done here. It is a very convincing story. Her tone seems to match the one she used at the wedding feast when she went off about how much she disliked maesters. Even that tirade circled back to the Starks, how Brandon's betrothal to Catelyn was suggested to Lord Rickard by his maester. But that's a rabbit's hole for another podcast. Her consistent bitterness towards the Starks is either as true as it seems or on a very elaborate act. While the latter would be more convenient to the GNC, giving us less to have to explain away, there really isn't any evidence that she is lying. However, if we ignore Lady Barbary's info dump, the scene contains some key moments. She has had her men searching everywhere for the crypts, through all the undercrofts and cellars, even the dungeons. We don't know how long ago the search began, but if the GNC is correct, it could have been just that morning after she got word from Harwood, who got it from Hothar, that she might find something of interest worth the hours of effort she put into finding, excavating, and finally visiting all her favorite Starks. As we discussed previously, the events in this chapter take place several weeks after the wedding. Lady Barbary has had plenty of time to ask Theon about the crypts, but it isn't until after Umber and Stout's quiet conversation on the dais that she does so. Coincidence? Perhaps, perhaps not. 
Once the Crips tour party is truly isolated from the rest of the castle, Lady Barbara pretty much acknowledges she knows Jane is not Arya. Dressing her in gray and white serves no good if the girl is left to sob. Then she blatantly states the Umbers and Hornwoods are not in full support of the Boltons. She even threatens Ramsay's lordship on the basis of his wife's well-being. So the Crips could have been a convenient place to have a clandestine palaver. But then she proceeds to tell Theon to pass all this on to Ramsay. So it seems to be another reason for the Crips tour. Well, Lady Barbary was kind enough to point that reason out for us as well. All three of them, without any prompting from Theon, she points out the three missing swords from the statues of an unnamed king, Lord Rickard, and Brandon. Bells go off, red flags waving. <laughs> Why does this sound familiar? All the way back in the Storm of Swords, Chapter 9, Bran 1. They had three tomb swords taken from the crypts of Winterfell, where Bran and his brother Rickon had hidden from Theon's Greyjoy ironmen. Bran claimed his uncle Brandon's sword, Mira the one she found upon the knees of his grandfather Lord Rickard. Hodor's blade was much older, a huge heavy piece of iron, dull from the centuries of neglect and well spotted with rust. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, now this could be a fun Easter egg for observant readers, or it might be just what Lady Barbary was looking for. If that is the case, this is on-page evidence of a link in the Game of Telethrones we've been tracking. From Wex, to Glover and Manderley, to Umber, to Stout, to Dustin, the story of the living Stark boys is spreading. To be fair, we aren't certain how it got to Lady Barbary, but there have been plenty of opportunities. It could just have easily been any number of conversations that took place in the weeks in Boltonfell. Perhaps a privy meeting, perhaps a quiet word, in a loud hall. However, the information was conveyed. If Lady Barbary is indeed looking for missing swords, that could be her attempt to confirm a tale of Stark boys escaping the cinders of Winterfell. But if that is the case, why the unrequited love backstory? If we look at it from the Theon's level of awareness, she is reinforcing her reasons for siding with the Boltons. If we look at it from Barbary's level, it could be a misdirect of her true intentions in the Crips. If she's full GNC by now, or she could be venting to a sympathetic ear as she answered Theon's original question by likening her hatred of the Starks to his love for them. That last possibility could be extrapolated further. She may be implying she actually loves the Starks. We have more in common than you know. And if we look at the scene from George's level, it could just be an overly creative, vexingly intriguing way to convey some backstory. <laughs> Whatever the reason for her backstory, the bitterness is strong with this one and must needs answering before we can count her in with the lords conducting the GNC. The best theory on Lady Barbary's heel turn elegantly ties in her visit to the crypts in a different way. As we mentioned earlier, her hatred of Ramsay is quite evident. Even Roos likened her grievance of the Starks to her grievance of Ramsay. After her visit to the crypts, perhaps Lady Dustin has received closure. All of the Starks she resented are dead. Regard for her southern ambitions, Brandon for taking her maidenhead and perhaps her love, then promising to wed Catelyn, Ned for taking her husband to war, never to be seen again, all dead. Even if she is as bitter as she seems, and I truly hope it's mostly an act, she can't be so unreasonable to let her grudges against the dead Starks keep her from helping the living boys, can she? <laughs> if she sees with her own eyes the crypts of these men, now dead, perhaps her motivation for supporting the Boltons wanes, and the only grudge she holds that we know of is the one against Ramsay. Whether it was closure, some yet-to-be-revealed rewards, or if it was all an act to begin with, by Theon's next chapter, Lady Barbary is starting to sound mighty wolfish. The ghost in Winterfell chapter chronicles the mysterious deaths that have been occurring. 
which began with one of Roger Weiswell's grooms. Roger blames it on a drunken fall while urinating off the wall, but Theon wonders why a man would climb the wall in the middle of the night to do so. A Talhart man mutters about Stannis having friends inside the castle, but one of Risewell's riders laughs, stating Stannis is either dead in the storm or back at the wall. A Serwin archer isn't so sure, pointing out because of the storm, Stannis could be camped five feet from Winterfell with 100,000 men and they wouldn't know. The debate continues in the Great Hall, where Old Lord Locke declares the storm is wroth, with the old gods turned against them and they are cursed. A Dreadfort man insists Stannis is the cursed one. He's out in the storm. But a free rider reminds them of the red sorceress with Stannis and suggests he might be warmer than they know. That comment reaches Ramsay, who has his bastards boys beat the free rider, take him out of the battlement gates and toss him from the wall. Bowmen on the battlement say they saw him limping away, but Ramsay declares he will be dead within the hour. Hothar uses colorful language to suggest he might be partying with Stannis before the sun goes down. Rickard Risewell laughs and warns Stannis will be too frozen for such a party. Check the quote, it's pretty good. <laughs> Lady Barbary speaks up. Lord Stannis is lost in the storm, said Lady Dustin. He's leagues away, dead or dying. Let winter do its worst. A few more days and the snows will bury him and his army both. And us as well thought Theon, marveling at her folly. Lady Barbary was one of the North and should have known better. The old gods might be listening. While all the other chatter has also come from Northmen, it is Lady Barbary who Theon thinks should have known better, which could be a device used by George to indicate, mayhaps, she is play-acting. Her comments could be intended to downplay Stannis's threat and buy more time for the GNC operatives. Also noteworthy, here is the banter between Lord Rickard Risewell and Hothar Umber, mayhaps an indicator of the chummy terms their houses are now on after Lady Dustin has brought her family into the fold. The next morning, Sir Aenys Frey's old squire is found dead. Aenys blames it on drunkenness as well, but Theon wonders why the man was naked. <laughs> and before the day was done, a flint crossbowman was found dead in the stables. Ramsay declares he must have been kicked by a horse, but again, Theon wonders if it wasn't a club. The deaths raise the tensions and the lords quarrel. Sir Hostine, who has already lost an ear to frostbite, wants to take the fight to Stannis. Leave the castle! croaked one-armed hardwood stout. His tone suggested he would no sooner have his remaining arm hacked off. Would you have us charge blindly into the snow? To fight Lord Stannis, we would first need to find him, Roos Ricewell pointed out. Our scouts go out the Hunter's Gate, but of late none of them return. Hardwood Stout's question seems to serve the same purpose as Lady Dustin's comment, delay. Also, we get a very interesting piece of new information from her brother, Reese Risewell. Scouts going out the Hunter's Gate and not returning. The Hunter's Gate is on the west side of Winterfell, the same direction as the Crofter's Village, where Stannis is camped. To be fair, when the Bastards boys threw the Freerider off the battlements, Theon described how all the other gates were frozen. We also don't know which faction the scouts came from when Risewell says our scouts. But the fact that no scouts are returning still raises the question, what happened to them? They could be getting lost and or dying in the storm. They could be getting caught by enemy forces, or mayhaps they are meeting up with a hidden force outside the walls. This possibility introduces new opportunities for the GNC operatives. If the scouts are from the Risewell household, which would be fitting as the Risewells are associated with horses, this would also be another sign that Lady Dustin has brought her family into the fold. The use of the phrase of late could also indicate this is a recent development, which fits nicely with Lady Dustin's theorized recent change of heart. 
What follows is the exchange we read earlier where the phrase accused Manderley of killing their missing kin, but Wyman is meticulous to explain they parted ways after he gave them their guest gifts. The argument intensifies in A Dance with Dragons, Chapter 46, A Ghost in Winterfell. Wyman Manderley laughed, but half a dozen of his knights were on their feet at once. It fell to Roger Risewell and Barbary Dustin to calm them with quiet words. Bruce Bolton said nothing at all. But Theon Greyjoy saw a look in his pale eyes he had never seen before, an uneasiness, even a hint of fear. Lady Dustin and her brother Roger Risewell are the ones to call Manderley's knights. How chummy. And the fear in Roose Bolton's eyes? Mayhaps he has seen his staunchest ally becoming friendly with his most treacherous bannerman? To be fair, her intervention could be to protect the phrase, and Bolton's fear could be the rising tensions between his supporters. But it's possible to read it both ways. That night, the new stable Roos had ordered built upon his arrival to Cinderfell collapsed, killing 26 horses and two grooms. Roos orders all the horses brought inside the castle. And soon after, Yellow Dick is found clearly murdered outside the kitchens with his manhood sliced off and shoved in his mouth. At dinner, the great hall is a horrid mess overcrowded with horses and men. Bolton has Abel sing, and Lady Dustin requests something cheerful, which the halls enjoy until the noise frightens the horses, forcing the music to stop. Theon becomes harassed by the bastard's boys and goes outside. This is when he encounters the hooded man before going back to his chambers, but he is immediately summoned to speak with Lord Bolton. The interrogation scene is a useful tool for George as it allows Theon to witness the current dynamic between the heads of the houses behind closed doors. In The Dance with Dragons, Chapter 46, A Ghost in Winterfell. Steelshanks led him back to the great keep and the solar that had once been Eddard Stark's. Lord Bolton was not alone. Lady Dustin sat with him, pale-faced and severe. An iron horse head clasped Roger Risewell's cloak. Annie's Frey stood near the fire, pinched cheeks flushed with cold. I'm told you've been wandering the castle, Lord Bolton began. Men have reported seeing you in the stables, in the kitchens, in the barracks, on the battlements. You've been observed near the ruins of collapsed keeps outside Lady Catelyn's old sept coming and going from the godswood. Do you deny it? No, my lord. Theon made sure to muddy up the word. He knew that pleased Lord Bolton. I cannot sleep, Lord. I, I, I walk. He kept his head down, fixed upon the old stale rushes scattered on the floor. It was not wise to look his lordship in the face. I was a boy here before the war, a ward of Eddard Stark. You were a hostage, Bolton said. Yes, my lord. A hostage. It was my home, though. Not a true home, but the best I ever knew. Someone has been killing my men. Yes, my lord. Not you, I trust. Bolton's voice grew even softer. You would not repay all my kindnesses with such treachery. No, my lord. Not me. I, I wouldn't. I, I only walk is all. Lady Dustin spoke up. Take off your gloves. Theon glanced up sharply. Please, no, I... I... Do as she says, Serena said. Show us your hands. Theon peeled his gloves off and held his hands up for them to see. 
It is not as if I stand before them naked. It is not so bad as that. His left hand had three fingers, his right four. Ramsey had only taken the pinky off the one, the ring finger, and the forefinger from the other. The bastard did this to you? Lady Dustin said. If it please, my lady, I, I asked it of him. Ramsey always made him ask. Ramsey always makes me beg. Why would you do that? I did not need so many fingers. Four is enough. Serena's Frey fingered the wispy brown beard that sprouted from his weak chin like a rat's tail. Four on his right hand. He could still hold a sword, a dagger. Lady Dustin laughed. Are all Frey's such fools? Look at him. Hold a dagger? He hardly has the strength to hold a spoon. Do you truly think that he could have overcome the bastard's disgusting creature and shoved his manhood down his throat? These dead were all strong men, said Roger Risewell, and none of them were stabbed. The turncloak's not our killer. Ruth Bolton's pale eyes were fixed on Theon, as sharp as Skinner's flaying knife. I am inclined to agree. Strength aside, he does not have it in him to betray my son. Roger Risewell grunted. Hmm. If not him, who? Stannis has some man inside the castle, that's plain. Reek is no man. N not Reek. Not me. He wondered if Lady Dustin had told them about the crypts and the missing swords. <sighs> we must look at Manderly. Lord Wyman loves us not. Riswell was not convinced. He loves his steaks and chops and meat pies, though. Prowling the castle by dark would require him to leave the table. The only time he does that is when he seeks the privy for one of his hour-long squats. I do not claim Lord Wyman does the deeds himself. He brought 300 men with him, 100 knights, any of them might have. Night work is not night's work, Lady Dustin said. And Lord Wyman is not the only man who lost kin at your red wedding, pray. Do you imagine Horsbane loves you any better? If you did not hold the Great John, he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them, as Lady Hornwood ate her fingers. Flints, servants, callhards, slaves, they all had men with the young wolf. House Risewell, too, said Roger Risewell. Even Dustin's out of Barrowton. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, feral smile. The North remembers Frey. Anus Frey's mouth quivered with outrage. Stark dishonored us. That is what you Northmen had best remember. Bruce Bolton rubbed at his chapped lips. The squibbling will not serve. He flicked his fingers at Theon. You are free to go. Take care where you wander. Else it might be we find you upon the morrow, smiling a red smile. As you say, my lord. Theon drew his gloves over his maimed hands and took his leave, limping on his maimed foot. Yay, the whole cast was in that one. <laughs> Good job, guys. This is the last time we see Lady Dustin, and her final words are the GNC catchphrase, the North remembers. And isn't it like George to give us hints and clues along the way before a reveal? This passage serves as the most convincing evidence of the Dustin and Risewell motives. They seem to fully support Manderley by this point. Roger directs speculation away from Manderley and Barbary's clever use of homophones in Night Work is Not Night's Work <laughs> implies the deeds are below the honor of a Manderley knight. 
I love that she diffuses suspicions against Manderley, not by downplaying his threat, but implying all the other houses have just as much hatred for the phrase. She indicates Hothar is a threat by invoking images of the death of Lady Hornwood, which is a curious choice, as that was Ramsay's work. But again, we can see how the horror inflicted there could hit close to home for Lady Dustin. She also names Flint's, Sirwin's, Tallhearts, and Slates. Add to that list Manderley, whom they were just defending, and by association, Locke, and herself, and by association, Stout and Risewell. That is everyone besides the Boltons and the phrase in Winterfell at the moment. <laughs> Her implication that they are all linked by the Red Wedding is a clear condemnation to the phrase. But as a key architect of the massacre himself, all the way down to which songs would be played, Roos should view it as a veiled warning as well. Indeed, by this point, it seems almost harder to prove anyone is still in support of Boltons. <laughs> which brings us to our final discussion. Like we said, Lady Barbary is a tough nut to crack. So many theories with so few answers. Let's start at the beginning. So how do you perceive Barbary's relationship with Roos? And combine that with her hatred for Ramsay. Um, how can she still support Roos? Because in spite of that, do you think that's all an act? And uh, he brought Ramsay to the Dreadfort after Domric's death. So if she believed Ramsay was to blame for that, wouldn't she also see Roos uh, welcoming his bastard uh, as kind of complicity in the murder? Our own Lady Dustin. Tell us, what do you think, Susan? Hmm. Well, I think that uh, as we've gone through these various discussions with uh, Lady Dustin involved, I think it's become clearer and clearer where her um, feelings are here and that she's not truly for um, the Boltons. I think that it's something that she, uh, you know, felt was politically in her best motivation you know her best in, in her best interest to do it at the time that she was doing it and certainly she has her history with the starks to play into that but um and and i think that she you know i do believe that she holds that personal grudge against ned and there's still some issues there like what she says about his bones and so forth but i don't think that she's going to let that color her um, total actions and, and where she's going to put the power and interests of her house, um, especially against people as despicable as the Boltons. So I think, you know, and you see where they talk about her feral smile here, which I mm -hmm. think is, uh, again, a little bit of a clue of, uh, you know, her alignment with the, with the wolves. So, um, you know, I, I do think by this point that, um, that she is, behind um, the, the conspiracy that's going on with all the people there within the Dreadfort. Yeah, everyone who's at least anti-Bolton fray. Right, yes. Okay. Yes. And her original alliance with Bruce was just kind of because it... Uh, I mean, obviously, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see that there is history there with... Uh, with Domric. Um, so I think that, you know, there may have been a closer, more friendly relationship in those earlier times, but I think that, uh, you know, with Domric's death and then everything else that has gone on and, uh, as much disdain as she holds, uh, it's, I guess it's a lot stronger than disdain as much, uh, uh, as she uh, just really despises Ramsey, that um, she is is not for them at this point. Yeah, it was easy for way. her. To, yeah, it was easy for her to to 
be a go against them as soon as it looked like it was favorable, maybe. Right, right. Okay. Especially with the additional information that she was getting from everybody. Which you think she was getting? Oh, definitely. I definitely. I think that, it, you know, the whole, um, the way, the timing of everything, the fact that when she went down to the crypts and how that has changed her, you know, what, what she's saying and you know, how she's presenting herself. Not, well, Lady Dustin has spoken. I don't know if we need any more convincing from that. John, what was your uh, impression after all of these things? I guess we can just kind of go through all of Lady Dustin and what you think. We'll go back around one more time with, with final thoughts. Um, but for now, just Lady Dustin, what did I you think of all of it? I don't know. I feel like I'm more confused than when I first read the book about her. She's, She's all over the place. She's yeah. gone rogue. <laughs> She's it's like the Kellyanne Conway of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> she is she is what do you think if you had a had a pin her down somewhere on, on one side a, or the other i have a feeling she's uh she's a stark loyalist it's just she's conveniently uh twisting her tails to kind of lay the groundwork to appear to be a stark hater to keep okay. the alliance with a ruse alive to probably keep herself alive be my guess until it, the tides turn so she actually kind of used her connection to the boltons from the beginning to keep uh, to get on Roos's good side and then never had true intentions of seeing that through. Yeah. I would, I would have a feeling she wants to get back for, uh, get back some vengeance for Domerick and probably her late husband who is probably a stark loyalist, which she is probably by mm. proxy. That's interesting. I like that. Okay. Mike, Mr. Manderley, or I guess I've missed yeah. Mr. Bolt, Mr. Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree, like, I, because the way that she talks about the Starks is a very personal, you know, his father made this decision, he made this decision, Eddard, you know what I mean? Like, she, it's a yeah. very personal version, but the way she talks about the Boltons is more, like, universally offended. You know, she kind of is more talking about the state of the North when she's talking about the Boltons and Ramsey and stuff. And when she's talking about the Starks, it's very like, they did this to me. So, you know, to me, it seems like she could be kind of happy to see Rickon in his grave, but <laughs> still not trying to watch Roos take over everything. Yeah, okay. So she's actually inflating her her personal grievances in the eyes of Roos, when in reality, what's truly important to her is the, like, honor or upholding northern tradition and such well i think she can have both you know yeah. <laughs> i think that, that she can you know she can want for the traditions to be carried on even if she doesn't necessarily think this current generation of starks is the one to do it that makes sense okay which kind of goes back to the beginning you know the first little discussion time where we have this question of like okay it seems like everybody's on board with ditching the boltons is everybody on board with john snow Eh, maybe people have their own ideas about who's going to follow the guy up, but what we can all agree on is we got to get this guy out. Yeah. Okay. So, so a vacuum of power, maybe even of even a vacuum of power would, would be preferable over uh, a Bolton sitting there. Certainly, to anyone who thinks they might be in a position to fill it. Yeah, and maybe even all of these houses, their motivation is they see somebody maybe that they would prefer. Certainly. I mean, you know, I think that if not someone within their own ranks, at least somebody that they have a more personal 
yeah. uh, relationship with or more access to control over. Okay, so even if it's not Rickon, or maybe even if it is Rickon, he's a kid, so maybe she would find that preferable that she could still have, somebody would still have a hand over him at that point. Queen Regent is a very, <laughs> it's a very cushy throne. She does have her eye on it. She did mention something at the feast about about that. If she were queen, she, maybe she's got bigger aspirations. All right, Matt, Mr. Theon did an excellent job. It's probably a strain <laughs> talking yeah. like Theon for that long. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably more like the way I actually talk than. Uh, you know. <gasps> uh, no, Secret seriously time. though. Uh, actually, I, what I really like about uh, <laughs> Lady Barbary Dustin is the fact that. When we looked at it in this under this kind of microscope, you know, you and Susan and I were doing the Dunkin' Egg things, and I really think uh, she reminds me a lot of the Checky Water Lady. It's like Roos is the guy in power. What else can I really do, you know, in terms of when uh, when things first start happening? Um, but I believe, just like uh, I think uh, a, a few of you all believe, that um, deep down, even though she may hate some of the things that that the Starks have done personally um she definitely sees the starks or anybody outside of bolton being best for the north overall and i love how this you know her words to anus Frey um just goes back to the very beginning of what we talked about with the guest rights i mean it all kind of seals it all up in, in a nice circle so i would say that even if she just had to lie to bolton and say yes i'm with you um, that she probably was already thinking about how the Boltons could be unseated at some point, especially if it got to Ramsey. Maybe she's got a little more tolerance for Roos, but if it were to ever get to Ramsey, she'd be totally done with it. And maybe she's just kind of, um, you know, she's just at a point where she just can't take it anymore. Yeah, and since he doesn't have any other trueborn heirs, that's kind of something she has to consider as her future in the North's future would be a a, Ram, a Ramsey Bolton, Warden of the North. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems a bit too far that we can believe that Lady Dustin would have like a grudge against the, like specifically Ned or even just the Starks in general that she would want that for the entire North. Yeah. Okay, cool. Was there anything else about Lady Barbara? You guys see the notes here. Is there anything about her kind of transition from her contempt for Manderley at the feast to her kind of defense of him at the end there, that seems like it might've been an act in the beginning, or do you think it was truly a transition that she went through while at Winterfell? I think there's been some transition. And, uh, and, and like I say, I think she can continue to, you know, maybe have a personal grudge against Ned and, and may want to feed his bones to her dogs. <laughs> But that's but that's her that's well, her fray pie. Right? Ha- haven't we can haven't we considered that it's Ned's bones that are actually doing all the messaging to to you know so that all these houses can can talk to each other you know the the the, the ankle bone goes to House Serwin, uh you know a, a couple of hands go to you know House uh, to uh, Horsebane Umber. You know, yeah, it, yep, yeah, up at the last hearth, obviously, probably probably <laughs> one of the smaller ones, but yeah. <laughs> You you joke about that, but I actually think that there could be something about like Rob's will being sm- smuggled in the the bones, and that's why they haven't made it out of the neck or something yet. But that's again another rabbit hole. I don't, <laughs> don't want to stretch us too far away from from Lady Dustin. Um, did uh, John Mike? Did you guys have a thought on Lady Dustin's transition? Do you think it was natural? Do you think it was an act? Uh, I think she was acting the whole time. 
calling her out. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think you know, I don't. I think she's biding her time, which is what you have to do. Yeah, as we kind of showed, it took a lot of time for their information to spread, and you know, somebody's got to climb the wall to make sure that there's four snowmen up there. It's gonna take <laughs> takes time to check that every day. <laughs> All right. Well, anyone else have any other thoughts about Lady Barbary? What do you think? I think that final note that I have is pretty indicative. I think George is smacking us over the head with it at the end here. <laughs> I think she's quoting, you know, the northern, what, what would you call it, slogan? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, north, the north remembers. And there's, I think, just that line alone probably should have just cut the rest of that quote and just left that. Right guys. And <laughs> <laughs> to throw it directly at a prey. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of uh, when considering that scene a little bit, like that red wedding is definitely bolt in handiwork. So I think that even any indication she had as to being a, a, a Roos friend was all an act. So I think like it's kind of calls into question everything. She's kind of espoused while she's been at Winterfell up until this point. The chain of information among GNC operators in Winterfell is now complete. Manderly and Locke to Umber to Stout to Dustin to Ricewells. And the remaining houses of Serwyn Flint, Hornwood, Slate, and Tullhart have sufficient motivation to work with the powerhouses. Now what? The end game is to retake the North in the name of the Starks and crown John the King in the North, right? Retaking Winterfell from the Boltons in the phrase is a crucial first step in that. But even with their strength solidified, they only have 1,300 men against 5,500 men of the combined Bolton and Frey forces. Uh-oh. Well, we're in luck. There happens to be an army about 5,000 strong, encamped at a crofter's village about 17 leagues from Winterfell. 60 miles as the raven flies. Three days. Well, I have to say that uh, out of all all of the things that have happened, I, I you know I, I probably was the biggest skeptic coming into this, and I'm still not a complete believer in a total unified group of, of the entire North working uh, to, to put John on as king. But I am uh, saying that I can't discount some of the connections that have been made over the course of this theory. I'm still a little iffy about Stoneheart and the Brotherhood Without Banners. But um, the rest of it uh, could logically make sense to me uh, in the long run, if for no other reason than to just avenge Rob uh, against the Boltons and the Freys. Anybody else come to a final conclusion about the theory? It's all real. It's all real. Every last bit (laughs) of it. How about you, Susan? Well... I think it's a wonderful theory. You know, all the original work that was uh, put into it by, what was the name of the, the girl who did the original? Yeed, I think it was Kai. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeed. Um, all her original work is wonderful. All the discussions that people have had about it in other forums and, and these discussions. I really appreciate all the work that uh, Kelly and John put into to this as well. And um, I think that, you know, we'll see that a lot of this does hold water as, you know, when we get to the next book. Um, and I do want to add, if people are interested in in looking at and thinking about maybe what's going to happen with that battle, that um, there's a series of three podcasts that 
History of Westeros and Brendan B. Blackfish of the Wars of uh, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire did on the History of Westeros um, uh, feed or whatever. They did a series of three where they really looked at the upcoming battle, including what was going on inside Winterfell and suggestions of how that might play out. That if people are interested in that, that might be something they'd like to check out. Susan is the champion of other podcasts. <laughs> not to just not to take anything away from yours. Not at all. <laughs> I'm just, jo- just joking. family. I'm just it's joking su- with you. Yeah. Just... Supplemental, supplemental material <laughs> for the true scholars out there. <laughs> oh, uh, Mike, how about you? Where are you at on this? I mean, I have been more convinced every time I've sat here and listened to Kelly read about it. Um, so I think, you know, I'm more and more think it's but now it's not just like for me, it's not just the pile up of all the different kind of conspiracy theories that she strung together. But it's also just the idea that really like it's taken so long to let the Red Wedding settle but now it's occurring to me that if you're going to really like avenge it or or bring it back or kind of you know square that circle in some way it's it needs to be big you know and it could be the kind of thing that would motivate the big move before the final run you know the kind of thing that everybody's focused on before first contact you know right. so I mean, to me, like, it's not just kind of the pileup of stuff, but it's also just the grandiosity of the response. And this fits that pattern that I think would be appropriate. So I'm into it. He's into it. Right on. (laughs) And John and Kelly, uh, why don't you guys uh, each say how you feel about it? I know that you guys have taken all of this time, especially Kelly, this last one to prepare these excellent podcasts. I really appreciate you doing all of the work. Yeah. Uh, all I have to do is sit back and be a grumpy pants. And I, I, <laughs> I love doing that. Um, but, uh, John, uh, you, you brought this up that we should do this. So are you even more of a believer now or has nothing really changed or you, you've kind of torn my, my wholehearted belief behind everything down a little bit into saying it's like all 100% true. It's all happening. It's so, so real to the point where I am a little bit more skeptical than I was to begin with. But I still believe that it's like I, there's some there's some movements by some big, big sh- uh, mover and shakers in the world of Westeros to make this come to bear fruit. Um, but. Again, I think a lot, some of it, like real life, kind of just happen chance, opportunism, and political kind of movings here and there is what's kind of bringing us to the point we're at. But I think the stuff in Winterfell is kind of where it's all kind of, kind of colliding and things are kind of happening behind closed doors or in bathrooms for hours at a time. <laughs> that sounds so... Uh... Inappropriate. Uh, uh, No, I'm just kidding, John. That's a great thought. Um, Kelly, uh, you get the last word. Uh, Convince any other skeptics out there how you firmly believe in this. Well, you know, I'm not, I can't end on just one. So I've got two points, but I'll make them both really quick. So the first one is that I do want to address that Yeats um, full analysis has her full, her capital trademark lettered um, 
GNC has additional parts that go into Stannis. And I think it's okay that we left them out because it's a lot of like conjecture as to like, why are the Northmen doing this? Isn't this super hypocritical to use Stannis? And I, I think that's good to address, but I don't think it's the crux. Like, I don't think it really proves what's happening or addresses any of like the proof. I think all of that came from like the, the, the clansmen um, viewing John. And I think a lot of that came from um, the stuff in Winterfell. So we did leave a little bit out. So there's more out there than we even covered in these four episodes, guys. Can you believe it? <laughs> I know. Matt's like, no, there's not. There's nothing else. <laughs> there's no more on this. Okay. So the second part, the point that I, would, I do want to make is that by the end of this, I really think that like at least the five of us have kind of come to like more of a, a lowercase letter GNC idea, maybe in quotation marks, that maybe there's more of like this two-tiered um, a, kind of conflict that there might be trying to attempt so there's that first tier which is where the bolton for a vengeance and we definitely kind of are all in ingredients on that the second tier is a little bit more questionable and you can kind of read into the text with the stuff it uh at the wall as to whether or not you believe that that's what's truly the intentions of everybody or some of the people or even just a few of the people so believe what you will i think it's really important to have an open mind tempered with skepticism everybody right. <laughs> thanks for letting us have this outlet matt <laughs> yeah right on well thanks for putting it together again excellent podcasts you can go back in the uh the podcast archives to find all of the editions of the podcast that john and of course kelly uh worked meticulously on to prepare and to uh, present in such a, a fun fashion and uh i've really appreciated having you guys on Folks, this will be the last podcast for the year. We will return sometime in the middle of January. And I really thank you for taking the time to listen to these. And we will see you sometime next year. You can find John at J underscore McGonagall. You can find Kelly at Kelly Underfoot. You can find Susan at Black Eyed Lily. You can find Mike at Fifth Column Film. And Mike, of course, is a member of the Small Council podcast. That's at Small Council Pod. Is that right, Mike? That is correct. Excellent. All right, folks. Here's Axel Foley from that same podcast to tell you how to contact me. Bye. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.